Welcome back to the Journey Sermon Series. It has been such a pleasure for me to be able to work through this and to really study this. This is the first time that I've gone personally this deep in the book of Colossians, and it has been truly a blessing for my own heart. I hope it has been for you. And let me kind of catch you up just really basically with last week's message, and I'll do it in about two minutes. When a person puts their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, in the moment of that faith, the old self, that inward disposition to rebel against God, to defy God, to be more concerned with yourself than anybody else, certainly with God, that old self. It was crucified in the moment of your faith. It was buried with Christ. It did not come out of that tomb. What came out of that tomb was you with a new self, a new self that now has a desire, an inward disposition to love God and to love people and to serve God. And Christ is joined with you in that very moment. It happens immediately. It's instantly done. He joins with you. He is in you. You are in him. There's a union now, Christian, between you and Jesus Christ, very much like a husband and a wife during the wedding ceremony when they take their vows and God makes them into one flesh. Christ is in you. You are in him. You are joined. There is a unity. Now here is where it gets so exciting. I mean, all that was pretty good. All that was really good. But what I want to tell you, what I've been trying to impress on you, what Paul's been telling you and telling me is that the life of Christ, which is the fullness of God, now lives in you, lives in every redeemed saint. And that life, that fullness is renewing and renovating us so that we are becoming more like Christ. That life and that power and that fullness is powering us towards change and transformation. Now I said all of that to make this statement. Are you ready? The effect and the impact of the life of Christ in us ought to be seen and is gloriously seen in marriage, family, and work. And that's exactly where Paul is going to go. Can I invite you back to the Journey series? It's a series where we are learning on this journey with Christ that we need help. We need people with us. And today we're going to look at who is in your life that is helping you learn to love. I hope you have your Bibles with you. And you know what? I'm going to just keep asking you over and over. You need your Bibles. Can I tell you, even right now, no matter where you are watching this and participating in this, go find your Bible. Even if it's on your phone or your tablet, or if you've got to run upstairs and get it out of your bedroom, go get it. That's all right. You're not going to miss too much. But get your Bible and open it up, please, with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And I'm going to jump right into our outline. We've got three points, and they're going to kind of build on one another, I think, around a central theme, and I'll introduce that as we go. Here's point number one. 
The impact of Christ in our marriages. The impact of Christ in our marriages. Now, I've said this before, and I don't know if you really truly believe this, but I'm going to tell you it again. The world was never as divided as it was in the first century. And now I know what you're thinking, especially in our political day and age, how divided we are in America, how divided we are between America and Canada and America and China. Listen, I'm gonna tell you that as bad as it is right now, it pales in significance to the division in every sector of life in the first century, Roman, Greco, Jewish world. That means the Roman, Greek, and Jewish world. And while that is true, it's also true that nowhere in the first century, nowhere in the first century world was the threat greater than for the family. It was under attack. I want to tell you something that you need to know about the teaching, the false teaching that's coming into this church at Colossae. This is why Paul wrote this book. And this false teaching was coming in and it scorned marriage and family. It belittled marriage and family. It believed and it taught this false teaching that marriage and family was part of the corrupt world and that it ought to be avoided. So Paul writes now in Colossians chapter 3, we're going to look at it, especially as we move into verse 18. He writes truth about marriage, family, and work. In Edward Gibbon's book, it was called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he identified five major causes for the downfall of, downfall of this incredible empire called Rome. The very first reason that Gibbons gives for why the Roman Empire disintegrated was this. It was the breakdown of the family. Now I want you to hear that. I'm gonna slow it down for a moment. I really want to impress this on you for a moment. It's the breakdown of the family. The family is the foundation for a society. And when the family begins to disintegrate, when the importance and the place of the family in the society begins to break down, the empire, the state, the country, the nation will inevitably fail. This was the thesis of Edward Gibbon's book, the family in Rome was in serious trouble, and books have been written over and over deta detailing how our own system, our own family in America, in our own society, it's on a parallel track with Rome. Now, here's what I'm saying so far, and I really want to slow this down so that everybody, even young people, can get this. There is an attack on the family in America. And there was an attack on the family in Rome. And as it began to disintegrate, the Roman Empire began to fall. And you're going to see this. I hope, I pray that God will turn things around. But you're going to see that as the family goes in America, so goes our country. Years ago, I read a book that really opened my eyes. It was called Family Under Siege by George Grant. 
And George Grant began to really write on this attack on the family. He really wrote about the attack on the family. And I began to study. I didn't really, I didn't really believe him. I mean, what, some of the things he was saying in this book were so outlandish. They were so frightening that I began to do my own research. I began to do my own study. Is there really this systemic, organized, relentless attack on the family in America? Well, let me read to you some quotes. Gloria Steinem, the famous celebrity feminist, once declared, and I'm quoting, we have to abolish and reform the institution of marriage. Robin Morgan said, and I quote, we can't destroy the inequities between men and women, listen to this, until we, re until we destroy marriage. Helen Solinger said, we must work to destroy marriage. The end of the institution of marriage is a necessary condition for the liberation of women. Mary Jo Bain, she's a professor of education at Wellesley College. She said this, and I'm quoting, in order to raise children with equality, we must take them away from families and communally raise them. Are you hearing that, parents? I hope this is frightening to you. I hope this stirs up anger within you. There is a concerted attack on the family. Linda Gordon, a radical feminist writer, writes this, and I'm quoting, the nuclear family must be destroyed and people must find better ways of living together. Now, I had to, for the sake of the time of this message, take out a lot more quotes. There are quotes after quotes after quotes, books and seminars and conferences. How can they deconstruct and destroy the family? They know if they want to create a different nation, you're going to have to destroy the family. It was into this decline of the Roman Empire's family that the good news of Jesus Christ exploded. And you're going to see in a minute, it exploded. And it's in our own present day, our own decline of the family, that the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to explode again. Christian, I'm asking you, understand the attack on the family. It's real. It is coming from the devil. Ultimately, he's been doing this since Genesis 3. That was the first attack on marriage. Genesis 4, the first attack on children. And it's been relentless the entire history of human civilization. I need you to understand this. We need to pray regarding this. And we need to see the impact that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life of Christ, the fullness of God, the impact that Christ has in marriage. So Paul begins in verse 18. Will you look at your Bibles with me? Let's mark them up. Get in your Bibles. This is amazing what we're going to hear. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I'm going to be really honest with you that whenever I teach this passage or any passages like this at a wedding or in pre-marriage counseling or in a sermon and there are women around, I can feel the air becoming electric. It feels dangerous when you begin to teach wives to submit to their husbands. 
And I'm going to tell you it's because our civilization has hijacked that word and made it what it was never meant to be. The word submit today is not only an unpopular word, it's almost a hate word. Ladies especially, let's just settle this clearly. What this word means and what this word does not mean needs to be clarified. First, it does not mean that a wife is inferior to her husband or that any woman is inferior to any man. It does not mean that wives are voiceless, that they are powerless, that they are only in an assistant role, that they have no will of their own, and they've got to jump to do the bidding of her husband. That's not what that means. Submission is not something that a husband should or even can rightly demand. And if he does, he doesn't understand how to love. He doesn't understand headship. A submissive wife is not one that is controlled by her husband. It's not to have no will or it's not to empty your mind of strong views. Her worth is not less than her husband's. She is equal to her husband in value before God. God loves the wife as much as God loves the husband. God does not love the husband any more than he loves the wife. When Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands, he's telling them, now listen to this, ladies especially, because I know this could be one of those fingernails on a chalkboard words. Paul's telling them to do precisely what Jesus did as he submitted to his father and found that submission to be his bread, to be his food, to be his joy, his strength, his purpose. So what does it mean then to submit to a husband? And here's where I hope you are really listening and I hope you're hearing this with the gospel in mind, with the spirit of God's help. It was actually the word submit, a military word. And it was a word that meant to arrange the troops, to place the troops in an orderly manner in their rank so that they could prepare for battle. So the word submit, you gotta go all the way back to the beginning. What it originally was, was a military word, and it meant to marshal your strength, and meant to array your ranks, and meant to get under your colonel, under your lieutenant, under your captain, so that you can fight in an orderly fashion and win the battle. That's what the word submit originally meant. And God's call is for wives to gather their strengths, their tenacity, their determination, their abilities under their husbands so that they can most effectively work with him together, defeating the battles that are coming against them. Now, husbands and wives, just for a moment, let's let's just get really real. Let's get utterly transparent. For Denise and I, there are constant battles. 
For you and your spouse, there are constant battles. The devil hates you if you're in a Christian marriage. He absolutely reviles you because by marriage itself, you are a living metaphor of Christ and the church. He hates Christ above all. He hates the church. He hates husbands and wives in Christ. He's going to do everything that he can to destroy your marriage. We have a battle that is relentless. And wives, to submit to their husbands is to recognize that and bring her strength into the battle under his headship, under his leadership, so that together they can win and have victory. There is a preposition in this verse, right? Look at it again. You're going to see it very, very clearly. I don't, I don't know why, but I really don't remember much in high school English class, but my preposition tables, of and by, to, for, with, add on front, into, under, toward, between, down, among, over, across, against. I don't even know why I remember that. I've been trying to get that out of my mind. For whatever reason, my English teacher made it stick. So here's your preposition. Wives, submit to your husband's, meaning toward or for or in his direction. But the Bible's call for a wife to submit to her husband is a call, and you've got to hear this. It is a call for voluntary willingness. It has to be voluntary or it's not biblical submission. It cannot be coerced. It cannot be manipulated. It cannot be forced. It cannot be commanded by a husband. It must be something that comes from within her and says, I want my marriage to defeat the battles. I'm going to bring all of my considerable abilities and strengths and gifts and love, and I'm going to bring them to my husband and under his leadership together, we are going to win and we're going to have victory. Now, not even a heartbeat goes by, not in Paul, before he writes, verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There is no pause between verse 18 and verse 19 because we're looking at complementary truths. In the ancient world, I've already alluded to this, but I'm going to tell you, in the first century ancient world, marriage was in utter trouble. Under Jewish law, not God's law, don't misunderstand what I'm telling you. This is not God's law. This is not the way God commanded. This is what became Judaism. This is what came out of Judaism. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing, a possession of her husband, just like his house or his flocks of sheep or his material goods. She had been reduced to a possession a husband could decree his wife for, or divorce rather, his wife for practically any cause, even if she spoke poorly of his mother. Ladies, have you ever spoken poorly of your mother-in-law? I hope not, but listen, it could be difficult. If a, in a Jewish home, if you spoke poorly of your mother-in-law, the husband could divorce you. He had legal means to do that. Listen, it gets even worse. If you burned his dinner, he could divorce you. I bet none of you have ever burned your husband's dinner. But if 
you did and you were in Jewish first century Judaism, he would have the legal right to divorce you. The only time that she could ever initiate divorce was if her husband developed leprosy. I bet there's a lot of Jewish ladies praying for that. If he gave up his Jewish beliefs or if he assaulted a virgin, then she could divorce him, but that's it. She had no legal rights whatsoever. And again, you must understand, this was not the law of God. This is not the Bible. This is what emerged within Judaism when people began to distort the loving teaching of God. Well, marriage was not improved under the Greek and Roman law. In fact, it worsened, if you can believe that. Wives were also considered then for them to be the property of her husband. She would usually have no part in his social life. Now, wives, I want you to hear this. She had no part in his social life. She was a recluse at home. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go shopping. Meanwhile, her husband could go out as much as he chose, and he could legally enter into any relationship he wanted with a guy or a girl outside of marriage. He would receive no criticism for doing that. Extramarital relationships were not only allowed in first century Roman world, they were expected and they were encouraged. I told you that marriage was in trouble. The decline of Rome coincided with the disintegration of its families. And you're watching that or you're hearing about that as I give you a historical snapshot. Her life was one of complete servitude and chastity. She actually would live in the women's apartments. She did not join the men of the household. They did not even eat meals together, husbands and wives. And oddly, the Roman state gave legal rewards to Roman women who had successfully given birth to three babies. Only then was she legally recognized as an independent and she could shrug off male control and have her own independent life. You see, in both Jewish and Greek customs, the privileges always belong to the husband and the duties to the wife. And it's into this horrible state of marriage that the gospel enters. And Paul writes, wives, submit to your husbands. Bring voluntarily all of who you are to bear so that together you can win the battles that come against you. And husbands, love your wives. That was stunningly, completely missing in Roman marriages. Paul's command completely renovates marriage. It restores order. It, re it puts love and dignity back to the foundation of every home. You see, Paul doesn't call wives to voluntarily submit without commanding husbands to love their wives. They go together. And you probably know this, but there's four Greek words for love. There's four of them. And the one that God, that Paul chooses here, agapao, is the very strongest form of love. It's the love in a husband's heart that seeks the highest good of his wife, even at the price of his own comfort, safety, and benefit. Now, husbands, I want you to look into this 
your TV, look into your tablet, look into your smartphone for a moment because you've got to get this just as much as I do. You and I are commanded to love our wives. And that love is a sacrificial love. That love views her as the most precious person in your life. It is full of sacrifice. It is full of love. It is full of movement towards your wife. And to add a warning in verse 19, Paul commands husbands, do not be harsh with your wife. By the way, I'm gonna... I'm going to put a little bit of fear in all of us husbands. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, I think it's verse 8, where Peter says, Husbands, do not be harsh with your wives, for if you do, God, your prayers will be hindered. If you're harsh with your wife, and if I'm harsh with Denise, my prayers, I've got to know it, they're going to be hindered. God is going to be saying, listen, you want my ear, you want me to move, you want me to respond, then go back to your wife and be gentle and be loving and be kind. That word harsh originally describes something pointed or sharp, and then it kind of evolved as words did and do, and it began to be used of what actually penetrates the senses, like a pungent smell or a piercing sound like a siren. That's what it means to be harsh. Figuratively, the word describes a settled hostility that actually brings emotional pain. So husbands, our harshness brings emotional pain to our wives. If you're a harsh husband, then you're going to find she has difficulty submitting voluntarily to you. But if you're a loving husband, if she is precious to you, if you're full of sacrificial love, then she's going to want to bring all of who she is to your side under your leadership so you can win the battles that come against you. Now, we've talked about the impact of Christ in marriages. That's the foundation of every home. Now look at the impact of Christ, point number two, in our families. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord, verse 20. Now, when you hear children, you might be thinking young kids, toddlers, maybe even preteens, up to teens. The word here actually means any child still living at home under the family's guidance. And while submit in verse 18 contained a voluntary willingness, obey was an outward compliance and an inward desire to give honor. Now, let me say that again for every, every young person that's listening. What Paul is saying in verse 20 is to comply with your parents. Ephesians is going to say in the Lord, comply with your parents outwardly, but make sure that your inward disposition is one that wants to bring honor to them. That word honor means weight and value. You value your parents, and therefore you want to do what they ask you to do. So that's the beauty of this command, and this is where the impact of Christ is aiming from the inside out. But like a husband must love his wife and not be harsh with her, 
Fathers must not provoke, verse 21, their children, lest they become discouraged. Now, really quickly, moms and dads, the word fathers here actually means parents. It's the way it was used in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. So Paul is not speaking to just fathers. He's speaking to parents. But why Paul even felt it necessary to write this tells us how radically the life of Christ was needed in the Roman world. So let me give you a little background of the state of the family. In Rome, fathers were called the pater familias. That meant the male heads of the families. And the pater familias had absolute rule over his household and his children. Now listen to this. If the child angered him, he had the legal right to disown that child, to sell that child into slavery. Now listen to this, even kill the child. I'm not making this up. This is how despicable the family was in Rome. It was the father's decision whether to even keep a newborn baby, boy or girl. When the baby was born, the midwife bundled it and then laid it at at the feet of the father on the ground. And if the father wanted to bring the baby into his family, he would pick, he would bend down and pick it up. If he turned his back and walked away, he just disowned the baby and the baby would be put on the nearest courthouse steps where people would come by and take that baby to grow up as a slave. If he wanted to and the baby was disfigured, he could actually command that the baby be thrown into the river and drowned. Even babies that were accepted into his household had a very rocky start in life. Historians have told us about 25% of babies in the first century Roman Greco world did not survive the first year and 50% of children in Rome died before the age of 10. Only Roman fathers could own property. Only at his death could his sons own any property. The strength of the family in Rome was precarious indeed, and it was worsening by the decade. So Paul brings the life of Christ into parenting, and he changes the entire fabric of the relationship of children with his parents or her parents. Do not provoke parents. Do not stir up. Do not unnecessarily irritate. Do not overly criticize your children. Do not extinguish their spirit. In a lot of uh, three decades, over three decades now of counseling, I'm going to tell you one of the worst and most damaging parental patterns there can be is an over, overly critical parent. It does something in a child that introduces a terrorizing fear that they will never be good enough. It sows insecurity into your children. Parents, we have the opportunity to love them, to not be harsh, to not overly criticize, to not stir up and irritate unnecessarily. And we can take the heart of our children and we can actually grow it 
and expand it by loving them, by giving them value, by pointing out who they are in Christ, by encouraging them and exhorting them, and listen, by disciplining them. You see, families without discipline lead to children whose spirits are emaciated and crushed. By the beginning of the second century, fathers began to actually, in Rome, gratify every whim of their children, and they created a generation of idle, entitled, demanding adults. Sounds eerily familiar to America. See, I'm telling you, we are on a parallel track with the Roman Empire, and I'm not the first to say it. Historian after historian is saying the same thing. But when the life of Christ comes into a redeemed sinner, into that husband, into that wife, into that father, into that child, it redeems marriage, it redeems families, and it restores them to the beauty that God has intended all along. I've got one more point for you, the impact of Christ in our work. Point number three. I want you to look at verse 22 with me, if you would. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He moves from marriage, Paul does. He went to family, and now he's concluding with work. And he's actually going to spend the most time with this one for a reason. Listen to this. It's been estimated that there were 60 million slaves in first century Rome. Now, put the, to put that in perspective for you, that was half of the population of the Roman Empire. Rome ran on slavery. As manual labor was considered below the dignity of a Roman citizen. In fact, many slaves, you got to hear this, many slaves were actually well-educated. They were teachers. They were philosophers. They were doctors and physicians. They actually were child disciplinarians. But the life of most slaves in Rome was not a happy one, for they actually were considered to have no will of their own. They were purchased property. They were owned by their masters. They were classified as things, as living tools. In fact, Rome encouraged masters to toss out old slaves the way that you would throw away a broken tool. The master held the power of death or life with his slaves. If a slave displeased him, all he had to do was command, and that slave was put to death. The slave had no legal protection. Ultimately and eventually, Christianity brought about the downfall of slavery and the Roman Empire as an institution. But today we would put it in more of a modern vernacular and Paul's advice is equally applicable to employees and employers, workers and managers. And as children are to obey their parents in everything, workers are to do the same with their bosses. Now this hurts, this is hard to hear me say that, that Paul is gonna tell you and he's gonna tell me, workers are to obey their bosses in everything. 
as long as it does not go contrary to the Lord. And not just when they're being watched. Look at that phrase, eye service. It means when your boss is looking. And not just doing a good job and a thorough job when they've got a performance review coming. That's what it means to be people pleasers. But to work just as well when no one is watching and just as well when you don't have any review that's forthcoming. We are to work like that. That's what the impact of Christ can do in the workforce of the church. You see, slaves in Rome couldn't possess, possess property of any kind. But they've got a promise from God in this passage that they will receive an inheritance from God's hand personally. Now, Christian, I want you to hear this. You might not get that raise. You might not get that promotion that you feel like you have earned and that you deserve and that you have worked harder than your coworkers for. You might not reach that next rung up the ladder, but God sees and he's telling you to live for your future and your eternal reward and work just as hard today for a unloving, unappreciating boss that you would for a good boss. Because there's a day when that unjust boss, chapter 4, verse 1, will be dealt with by Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure some of you are saying amen to that. Listen to what Paul says. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You've got a report, and you're going to be judged. And not only will Jesus bless you who are treated unfairly in your workplaces, he will judge the one who unfairly treated you. Now, we've talked about marriage, we've talked about family, we've talked about workforce. And the impact of Christ is seen in all three of those. And Paul is bringing the truth of the gospel to bear. And what he's saying is this, and I'm almost done. I'm going to be done in two minutes, three minutes, maybe. You never know with me, but I'm going to tell you it this way. You ready? So let's really sharpen our focus and really listen to this part. The life of Christ radically changes marriages. The life of Christ radically impacts families. And the life of Christ radically, radically transforms workers. And it does it always from the inside out. It works in our hearts. The fullness of God is coming into us because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are with him seated in the heavenly places and the power of God is coming and it is working in us so that we love our wives, submit to our husbands, love our children, obey our parents, honor our masters, work hard even when you're not being recompensed fairly. So what do you do with this message? Well, it's easy, really easy in an online church to just turn off the TV when I say amen, when the last song is sung. And when Chrissy says goodbye to everybody, turn it off and just move on and have a great day. It's really easy to do that, but I'm going to ask you not to do that. I'm going to ask you to do this instead. I'm going to encourage you to examine your life. 
Is the fullness of the life of Christ continuing to transform your marriages? Is it continuing to transform your attitudes with your parents? Is it continuing to transform your parenting style? Is it continuing to transform how you work for your employer and how you manage your employees? Is every day evidence that Christ is in you and you are in Christ? And I'm gonna ask you to do something if your answer on any of those is no. The only right response is to confess that and to repent and to ask God to bring his power to bear, to transform you to be like Christ. If you've got an attitude at work, if you've got an arrogance that you feel you're over your coworkers and that you constantly question your boss and that you get sick of your employees and you're frustrated with your wife and you say, there's no way I would ever submit to my husband and you're tired of your parents telling you what to do and all you do is criticize your children. Listen, in any of those, the only right response is to confess this to the Lord and repent. Because Jesus Christ is changing lives day by day from the inside out. How is he doing that? Look back as we close to chapter 3, verse 16. And you're going to see it again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Who's helping you learn to love? Who do you have in your life that is telling you you're not doing very well in your marriage? Your attitude with your husband is not pleasing to God. Your defiant spirit with your parents is wrong. The way that you're working ought not be the way that a Christian works. Who's telling you these things in your life? And who are you listening to when they say it? So that you can move back into the power that you have because Christ lives in you and you are with him. Amen. Let's close in a brief prayer. Father, I thank you for this book of Colossians. It's hard hitting. This was a tough, tough sermon for me personally. And I'm sure it was for others as well who watched and participated in this. But Lord, let us sit under the hard truths of the word of God and let our hearts move in the right direction. Father, we're gonna go back into singing another song. Lord, I pray that everybody will stay, that everybody will sing, that everybody will participate and worship. And Lord, we're gonna hear Chrissy close our whole service as she's gonna encourage people in a direction. And Lord, I pray that we would listen to her. And Lord, that this church, Cornerstone Church, and all who are watching would be the people of God that can radically impact our culture. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.